It's great to be with you, and um, it's really a privilege to get to speak about Jesus and His church. And uh, what we're going to do today is we're going we're gonna to ask this question to start with, how should we define church? How should we define church? And uh, you might go, well, wait a minute, you're already going to that. What about, you know, like missional communities and all these kinds of other things? And I want to start there because if we don't start there, then what we end up doing is we just try to figure out what's a new methodology, what's the newest practice, what's the newest fad, or whatever it may be. And I, it's, it's interesting as I, as I speak and, and uh, talk at different conferences and I interact with different leaders, uh, a lot of people have a, a kind of a perspective of this idea of missional communities. It's like it's a, it's a new thing. And uh, so like I'll, I'll, I remember the last panel I was at, they were doing a panel conversation. They said, so you're kind of like the missional community guy. I'm like, I don't know what that means, but okay. And so, so like, you know, tell us, you know, like some people just say it's a fad, you know, it's like there was church growth and seeker, and then there was, you know, now we're in this new thing called missional community or whatever. And, and I and said, well, first of all, I always ask them, what do you mean by a missional community? And I, it's always interesting to me to hear what they mean. And most of them, like, they say, well, this idea of missional, that means like, the church is now just going like out and doing projects. They're like involved in service and you know caring for the poor and the broken. And, and then what they usually describe is some kind of new Christian activism uh, in, in terms of social justice and such. And I, I'm by the way, I'm all for that and not negative against that. But but what what they they think is it's just the church is finally just going outside of the walls on Sunday once in a while to do some work in their city. And I'll say, well, that's not what I mean. When I think of missional, I think of people seeing themselves as God's missionaries 24-7 to bring glory to God in all things and proclaim the truths of Jesus into all of life. That, when I think of missional, I'm thinking of the church on the mission of glorifying Jesus by making disciples who make disciples in every aspect of life. And then when I see that, they're like, well, that's not what we thought it meant. You know, it's always kind of like a, well, that's what you're saying. That's a different conversation than the one we thought we were going to have with you, which is, so do you think that's important to gather? And do you think it's important to teach the word? And they go back to all those other things. And they think missional is just an add-on to the church. And I want to say it's, it's so much more than that. It's, it's more seminal. It's more foundational. It's more... It's really uh, an identity. It's, it's who we are. And so I want to talk about that. But before I do that, I want to ask you, when I say, how should we define the church? What do you think most often, now a lot of you are leaders in the room, or you're part of a leadership team maybe, or you're, you're getting trained by the leaders who wanted you to be here. Um, let me ask you, instead of you telling me what you think it, the answer should be, when, when we ask the question, how should we define church, what do you think most people would give us an answer for what, what church is. Okay, some would say it's a building. It's a, it's a service. An institution. It's for Christians. It's for holidays. Yeah, they're priesters. Okay, that's still going to do that to me as soon as I back up. You can turn that off, actually. I don't really need it. So. It's kind of old school. It's old school? Okay, we'll leave it then. <laughs> what else? It can be hurtful. 
Okay, they might think it's it causes pain. Yeah, there's some who are saying the church has hurt me. I think just unplug it. Yeah. Anything else? A social group? Could be a political group. Okay, and we could keep going. Now you guys are all negative. What's wrong with you? Man? <laughs> People hate the church in San Diego, I guess. <laughs> we'll stop with that. <laughs> Let's get on the positive side. Uh, what, now let me ask, if I were to ask a theologian, a seminary professor, uh, someone who's been in the church and teaching the church for a long time, what might they say? Okay, the body of believers. Pillar of truth. Pillar of truth. Called out ones. So we got family, body of believers, pillar of the truth. Called out. Okay, we can keep going. It's interesting that you guys all did that. You guys are quite well trained, I guess. Um, oftentimes what people say when they define church is they'll say the church is the, the uh, regenerate people of God who gather regularly for worship and teaching and the observance of the sacraments, baptism and, and Lord's Supper, under biblically qualified elders who exercise church discipline and hold the church accountable for making, uh, being faithful to make disciples who make disciples. Like that would be, if I said that, most people go like, you know, most seminars would go like, amen. You nailed it all. You know, you got God's people, you got God's, all the work. But listen, I want to say it again. I want you to listen as I say it. How many of the things that I say are what we do and how many things that I say are who we are? Okay? God's regenerate people who gather regularly for worship and teaching of the word and the observance of sacraments, particularly Lord's Supper and baptism. Under biblically qualified elders who exercise church discipline and call the church to the great commission of making disciples who make disciples. How much of it was who we are and how much of it was what we do? About 10% was who we are. About 90% was what we do. Now, why, why do I do that? The reason why I'm asking that question is because if you ask most people what church is, how you define church, the average person will tell you it's what we do. The average person. Now, they might also have that list of terribly negative things that you all just said. But let's just say they like the church. Uh, most would say it's an event I go to. It's a building that was built. It's, a, you know, it's, it's programs, it's services. It's, and usually when they say, I like church, you know, I like the church, or I like a church, they're referring to what that church does. Yeah. Right? I like what that church does. I like its services. I like its preaching. I like their, And it's really interesting that when people say, I don't like that church, and it can go both ways. I like it or I don't like it. Most often, they never say, I like us. They're, they're almost always saying, I like them. And primarily, I like him or her or whatever church background you come from. The leaders that are leading it. It's like, the leaders who are leading it and the services they're providing is what they like or don't like. They, they don't say, I like us. And it's interesting, early on when we started uh, Soma in Tacoma, 
uh, when we would start to form this core group together, and I would we would meet and we'd you know teach and we call them to go obey, and then they come back and and I remember you know you, it doesn't take very long. People always say to you like, man, I'd love to just plant a church. It's so easy just to start from zero, you know, like fresh, you know, z like blank blank slate. I'm like no one starts with a blank slate. You got people, right? Like you don't get to program them as though they never had some background, you know, like. Like, they have a background, and they bring it to you. Whether they're Christian or not, they bring it in, and it doesn't take very long until they want the church to be about them. You know, no matter how much you call them to mission, they still want it to be about them. And so early on, we get to a place where some of the people in our group would go, man, I just, I really don't like Soma. I just feel like, I feel like Soma's not very, they're not very welcoming, or they're not loving me. They don't love very well, and on and on and on. And I would stop and say, okay, be... That may all be true, but I want to just change your language a little bit. I'd like you to say, I don't like us. We're not loving. We're not very welcoming. Because you don't go to church. You are the church. So if you want to critique something, critique you. Critique us. And it's okay to say we're not loving. But let's not say you're not loving. Let's say we are not loving. Let's say, not say the church is not loving. Let's say we're not loving. We are the church. And see, the reason why this is important is because a lot of us have this idea that the church is all about doing, not about being. We don't see the church as us, as an identity. We see the church as an event or an activity. And the problem with that is if we think of it more as doing than being. What we end up doing is we go backwards. We say, what we do makes us who we are. Okay? And, and if I were to back up in the story of God and you get into Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you realize that the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, we are who we are, therefore we do what we do. God says, I'm creating you. He creates us in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And before they are called to do anything, they're already image bearers. It's their being that leads to their doing. Image bearers do what God is like. God is creator. He creates, so be fruitful and multiply. You are made in his image. You are a fruitful multiplier. Go and be fruitful and multiply. God doesn't say, go be fruitful and multiply so that you will be my image bearer. He says, you are my image bearers. Now do what reflects who you are. And it's always in line with our being. God never calls us to do something that isn't connected to who he made us to be. So what does the serpent do? He comes in the garden. Remember, they're made in the image of God. In his likeness, he creates them. The serpent comes in the garden and says, God knows that when you eat of that tree, the fruit of that tree, that you will become like him, knowing good and evil. So what does the serpent do? He says, no, 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 no. It's not your being that leads to your doing. It's your doing that leads to your being. If you eat of this fruit and put your confidence in your works, then your works will make you like God. And that's the beginning of works theology. Works-centered justification begins in chapter 3 of Genesis. It's, we tend to think, oh no, it's, it was all works in the Old Testament, and then it was by grace through faith you've been saved in the New Testament. No, it was always by grace. Because God created them in His image. They did nothing. They just received they just became. Adam goes from dust to image bearer. He does nothing. Eve, it comes out of Adam as a, a, a rib that gets formed in a woman. She does nothing. They both are brought together. They do nothing. 
God does it all. It's all by God's work. It's by grace that they became. Okay, so that's really important. Because what happens is that in the beginning, the, the evil one comes in and says, don't you dare believe that God is good and glorious and great and, and wonderfully uh, uh, kind to you. Don't believe that. He's holding back on you. You're really nothing until you do something. And once you do something, then you are something. That's the message. And this shouldn't be new to us. This is the message of the world. Right? I mean, it's seeped through everything. You think about when you meet somebody. Right? You go, hi, I'm Jeff. Well, I'll pick you. Hi, I'm Jeff. You're... I'm Brad. Brad? Yes. Okay, what usually happens after that? What do you do? What do you do? Right? I'm Jeff. I'm Brad. What do you do? I'm a pastor with you're, Restore. You're a pastor with Restore. All right. So glad to know that you are somebody because you do something. <laughs> right? I mean, that's usually how it works, right? It's like, I mean, think about the last time someone came to you and said, hi, I'm Jeff. I'm Brad. Who are you? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually what I mean, try that sometime, by the way. Go, hi, I'm Jeff. And, you know, they say your name and say, who are you? <laughs> now, pay attention. They'll probably say what they do. I'm a doctor. I'm a teacher. I'm a mother. I'm a father. And, the, you know, now, mother, father t is a little bit more identity. You know, because you, you became one because there was a, someone born, which you didn't really have a whole lot to do with. I mean, you had something to do with it, <laughs> but not a lot. You, you, God formed that baby in the womb, and it's a gift of God. That, and all of us who are, who are parents know that it was by grace, because you couldn't really control it. There's some of you who are still trying to have children. You're grieving the lo that, that loss of hope, and you want something you can't control. My wife and I took nine years to have our first baby. I mean, you, you do nine years of that, and you finally go like, this isn't up to me, is it? I mean, we're doing everything. My wife had me on a schedule. You know, like, literally, it's time, sweetie. Come on home. And you're like, no, come on. I mean, I was hoping it would be greater than this. <laughs> like, I feel like a machine. I feel so used. <laughs> That's kind of how it becomes. Because, because what happens is we put our confidence in our doing. See, we don't know how to answer the question, who am I? You know, someone says, who are you? What should you say? I'm a child of God. I'm an ambassador of the king. I'm a new creation in Christ. I mean, there's so many things we could say. The scripture is full of identity language. And what's amazing is Paul, when he's correcting the church, even when he's not correcting, like Ephesians, and that's just like giving you what is the church kind of. In fact, I would say to you, if you don't study Ephesians and really dig into it and just get immersed, let that word immerse your soul, you won't understand our identity very well, especially Ephesians and Colossians. But when Paul speaks to the churches, he, he always starts with who God is, what he's done, who we are, before he goes into what we do. Now, it's even amazing that when he's speaking to the Corinthian church, he's like, man, grace is abounded in you. Like, you, you guys are lacking nothing. You know, he just speaks of their identity, and then he knows that they're not living in light of it. And so what he does is he confronts the way that they're living because they aren't living as though they believe the truths of the gospel. That's the problem. Their unbelief is leading to their wrong behavior. It's not, hey, try to be a better person. Try to do better things. He says, you stopped believing the truth about who God is and what he's done and who you are. That's why you're doing what you do. And that's what we need to understand, that all of our doing actually comes out of what we believe about who we are. 
This is a big question. Who am I? Okay? But let's make sure we, we go back where we need to go, and that is who we are comes out of our understanding of what God has done. Okay? And that reveals to us who God is. Okay, now getting this order right is absolutely imperative to figure out what should we do. Okay, that, that's important. And uh, what we tend to do, and this is the tendency of all church training, leaders training, you know, like trying to get the church to be more effective, is we go, we just kind of throw this all out and we get right to let's figure out what we're supposed to do. And the problem is if you teach people the new list of what to do, they will easily buy into an idea that they actually be, are justified before God by what they do, not because of what God has done and who they are. That'll be the tendency. That if, if, you, if you say, primarily we want to teach you what to do around here, you might say, you're, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. But what you're telling them is, you're nothing until you do something. And you know what? You're even better if you do more. And God loves you more if you do more for God. And if you don't do more, he's going to be very displeased with you, just so you know. Right? I mean, we subtly are teaching that we actually have the ability to earn God's favor through our acts of obedience. But the scriptures tell us very differently. God's favor does not get earned. If it were earned, it would not be favor. It would be payment. The only thing that we're going to get paid for is our sin. Wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you know what you get to receive? An inheritance. You're co-heirs with Christ. It was his work that gives you the gift, and you receive it. You get God's favor unmerited. That's grace. If we don't get that, what we'll do is we'll say, doing lots of good will make you really acceptable and loved. And then you guys just keep going. This this is the serpent's lie. Because what we do is we say what we do gets to define who we are. Who we are gets to tell us how we interact with who God is. It's back to the garden. What you do makes you God. You get to control God's perspective, God's approval, God's sense of uh, love for you. All based on what you do, you can control God now. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we don't say it that way, right? We don't ever want to say it that way. Because that sounds a little bit... Like, wow, that's really bad. <laughs> but it's what you're saying if you put your confidence in your works to change God's opinion of you. Okay? All right. Now, you got that. I'm going to show you how this works, and we're going to talk about how we go after the church with this. Okay? Um, I just want to share a little bit of, with my, a story with my wife, because hopefully this, and I've asked her permission, just so you know. Um, my... What, what, and it's not bad to look at what we do, just so it's clear. In fact, what we do reveals what we believe. You know, that's James, First John, all those things. Like you say you love, you say you know a God who's who's called love, and yet you fail to love. The truth is, you don't know God. That's that's First John. So he's saying there, your your behavior does reveal something about your belief, and that's important. In fact, your behavior stems from your beliefs. You could say that it this way: every behavior is grounded in your beliefs about who God is, what he's done, and who you are. Every behavior, I would say. And not only behavior, but the fruit of your life. Remember Paul to the church in Galatia uh, says that, you know, your mindset on the flesh 
and he lays it all out. What does it produce? It's, you know, it's, ma- it's anger and it's malice and it's d- destruction in relationship and all this stuff. But the fruit of the Spirit is, what is it? Love. Peace. It's good to know these, by the way. Okay, good. Good. Because Why is it good to know it? Because the person who's experiencing the fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, stuff, you know, that, all that you said, if, if, if they're experiencing that, it's because their mind is set on the truth of who God is, what he's done for us in Christ Jesus, and now who they are as a result. And the one who's not experiencing that is living in unbelief in who God is, what he's done for us in Christ Jesus, and who they are as a result. That, that's how it does work. My wife was experiencing a lot of anxiety one day, and we, as we were walking through her anxiety and her struggle with this, um, I just started asking her some questions. I said, babe, when, you, when you're experiencing this anxiety, it was around some of the stuff with our kids and by the way, I have three, we have three children. I've been married for about 21 years. It'll be 21 in March. Uh, we have an 11-year-old daughter, a 9-year-old son, and a 7-year-old daughter. I'll tell you more about them maybe later. Uh, but they're a huge blessing. So we were talking about her anxiety. I, I did what, what I often call with our church is I, I did, fruit, I did uh, fruit to root. The fruit of her life going to the root of her faith. Okay, So I just said, right now, what are you believing about who you are, babe? And she said, I believe I'm in control. I said, oh, well, okay, then why the anxiety? She said, I believe I'm <laughs> out of control. <laughs> right? At that point, I stopped and I said, so I want to just ask, do you believe you should be in control? Do you believe you should be sovereign in control of all things? By the way, let's be clear, the fruit of the Spirit, one of it, it's self-control, but that doesn't mean it's control of everyone else. It doesn't mean it's control of your world. It doesn't mean it's in control of your kids and control of your spouse and control of your job. It's, it's, it's self-control, which means it's able to submit to Christ. Let's just put it that way. It has the ability to go, Jesus, you're my king. You're sovereign. You're in control. I'm under you. That's, that's what we're talking about. It's not like I get to control everybody. Uh, so I said, well, so how, you feel like you're in control, out of control. What else? He said, well, I feel like, because she said, I, I, don't, I don't feel like this. So, so one, you feel like you should be sovereign. Yeah. But then as we talked more, she said, and by the way, I didn't do this in like this short time. I'm going to do it with you. Uh, this is like over. I was loving her and caring and listening. And, you know, I don't always do that. But this day was a good one. <laughs> one out, you know, one out of 365. It's, it's pretty good. Um, and so she said, I feel abandoned. I said, what else? She said, I feel unloved. What else? She said, I feel powerless. I said, okay. Well, what, what does that tell you about what you believe God has done? She said, well, I believe he's abandoned me. What else? I believe he stopped loving me. What else? She said, I believe that that God lost control in my life and in my surroundings. Now, the beauty is she's confessing her unbelief. She's confessing. You know, when we talk about confession, too often we go like, just confess that you're anxious and you've been worrying and you're trying to control your world. Yep, I'm an anxious worrier. I confess that. Done. And we all our groups, you know, like, you know, we're like, guys are getting together like, yep, I looked at porn. Don't do it again. Okay. 
You know, it's like we never ever get to the fact that they're doing it because of their beliefs. And so we never get to their beliefs. And so I stopped and asked her this. Now, here's what's important. It's not just what you believe he's done. What are you believing about God? And she said, I believe God is absent. I believe God is unloving. I believe God is impotent. Now, one thing I love about my wife, my wife is a truth teller. So when she's confessing, she's not holding back. I mean, to say that about God, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of going, okay, let's, uh, you sit over there, I'll sit over here, we'll keep talking, I love you, babe. Something, you know, just, can we do this outside? I really like our house. I'm just kidding. Didn't really think that. But, but there's part of me, and my wife has had to talk to me several times. She says, Jeff, people are afraid to be honest about their, what they believe. There have been times when I'm very angry and frustrated with people around me, and she said, well, tell God that you hate them. Like, I can't do that. It's wrong. She goes, yeah, but you do. You hate them. It's like, look at the Psalms. God, kill my enemies. Strike them down. Yeah, you're reading through the Psalms. You're going like, guys, these people are mean. You know, like, what's wrong with David? Like, he's a grumpy man, you know? And then, but, but then you get to this. He's like, oh, you alone search me and know me and see if there's any wicked way. It's like, he's willing to. This is the thing I think of is true of David. He, he's the guy who can dance naked before the Lord. You know, figuratively. Now, he had something on when he did it, but you know, some people didn't like that too much. I'm not going to do that today, just so you know. Um, but here's the beauty. David is just going like, he has an intimacy with God. See, intimacy with God is not having great, great prayer times or Bible times or worship times. It's, you know me, and I want you to see me, and I don't want to hide anything. I just want, I'm going to be honest right now, I just think you're impotent. I, think, I, I believe that you're unloving. I believe you're distant. Now, what was Janie doing? She was confessing. She was confessing. She's confessing her belief. Now, is this true? No. In fact, as she was confessing, this is the beauty of doing this with believers who know the truth about God is revealed in Christ, is that we go like, I don't believe that. In fact, as I was doing it, you guys are going like, yeah, but he's not. Right? But you believe it too at times. And at this point, when we got to this, she said, but I don't really believe that. And I said, well, what do you believe? And she said, well, I believe that God is loving. Now, I want to pause here for a sec, because before we go through this, I, I want to make a note. So often as Christians, we basically call people to new behavior without new belief. So, and, and this, why this is so important, leaders especially here, if you're looking to transition your church or lead your people into new behaviors, don't call them new behavior. Call them to pay attention to what they've been believing that's been leading to the wrong behavior. So in this case, we often go like, oh, you're anxious? Don't worry, be happy. <laughs> right? And that's just behavior modification. That's worldliness, just so it's clear. Worldliness is believing we can make ourselves, we can change ourselves, we can do it. Don't tell your church they can do it. They can't. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul said in Roman, or to the Colossian church, Christ in you the hope of glory. Not you for God, but God for you. Not you doing good things so that God might be seen. It's God in you working through you so he might be seen through you. And it'll be apparent that it wasn't you. That's the jar of clay analogy. Is the idea that you've got nothing. You're weak, you're fragile, 
You don't have any glory in and apart all by yourself. It's his glory that gets seen. So we want to call people to God and the work in Jesus and a transformation of their whole entire identity so that their life looks like what God is doing, not what they're doing for God. And we have to be careful of this. So we used to go, don't worry, be happy. But then what we condemn to do is we go, well, who is God? And he's loving. And, and this is good, by the way. I, I'm not pulling this apart, but in a second. There's another thing we tend to do that we've got to be careful about. We say, God's loving. God loves you. Well, how do I know that? Don't worry. God's in control. How do I know that? And we tend to just stop here. Some just go, don't worry, be happy. Some go a little bit further and it's better. Don't worry, God's in control. Don't worry, God loves you. But that's not sufficient. That's not Christian. It's true. It's not enough. How do you come to know who God is? Through Jesus Christ. He's the fullness of the deity in bodily form. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You cannot come to know God apart from Jesus. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You want anyone to know a truth about who God is? They have to know that through Jesus. You cannot know a truth about who God is apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so don't just tell them God is loving. It is true. It's not sufficient. Because they cannot come to know God as love apart from Jesus. So I, at this point I said, babe, how do you know God's loving? Family, how do we know God is loving? While you were still sinners. Christ died for you. Paul says, this is how we know the love of God. Romans 5.8. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's how you know. And that's why Paul can later on say, if he would do that while you were still a sinner, how much more now that you're his children? I mean, he can love his enemies to the point of dying on the cross for them, then how much more as children of God are you dearly loved? Why question the love of God when you look at the cross? How much more can he do? He can't do anymore. He gave you himself. That's the greatest gift of love there is, is to give someone themselves. It's easy at Christmas to give people gifts. It's hard to give them yourself. I think that's why people spend so much at Christmas. I think they're trying to figure out how to tell someone they love them without giving them themselves. It's a lot more safe and convenient to go and put a big credit card charge up so people can open gifts. But to give you a person, to give, you your, to give someone yourself. Remember Jesus said, no greater love is there than this, that a man would lay down his life for his what? Friends. Who did Jesus lay down his life for? His enemies. You hear what he's saying? He's like, there is greater love. You know, no greater love than this. He's, he's catching them because they're like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Lay down your life for your friends. And then he goes and he lays down his life for people who aren't his friends. Us, the outsiders. He's loving. And we know that because Christ died for us. And James said, he's powerful. I said, how do you know that? And she said, well, how do we know that? He rose again from the dead. If there's ever a time it looks like God is impotent, it's when Jesus is hanging on a cross, breathes out his last, it is finished, and they put him in a tomb for three days. And you've got to imagine, everybody's going like, it, that's it? That's all? The Messiah of the world is dead. The one who claimed to be equal with God, the I am, the bread of life, the manna from heaven, and we can just keep going all the ways in which Jesus describes himself. You just got to imagine what they're going like. We put everything in this basket. And he's dead. I, I, I guarantee you, there's nothing that you put everything into 
in this world that, that is anything close to Jesus. You know, like, they put it all in the basket of Jesus. Some of us put the basket, of, put it all in the basket of our kids, in the basket of our job, whatever it may be. But this is the God-man. And the God-man is dead. Now, if there's ever a time when it looks like God is impotent, out of control, it's then. And yet we know that before the creation of the world, God had determined that his son would die for the sins of the world. He was never out of control. It was completely in his plan. It was, it was, it was his way to put to death death. And even in his death, he's in control. And death is being killed. It's beautiful. And then he rises again from the dead. We know that God is not in control because Jesus raised. And if he's, I told my wife, I said, babe, if he's not, if he was never out of control in the resurrection, guaranteed he's not out of control right now with our children. He's fully in control. You can trust him. And then I said, what else? He said, he is present. And how do we know, church, that he's present? He sent his spirit. And I can't draw a dove very well, but just imagine that that's the spirit. <laughs> he sent the spirit. into. He said, I'm not going to leave you, Jesus, as orphans. I'm going to be, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. So, babe, do you, do you know this to be true? Now, here's the key. What I want you to see is this little turn is called repentance. It's actually a big turn. Because here's what was going on. My wife, you saw the fruit of her life was anxiety, but the problem was she was worshiping a false god. That's what was going on. She was worshiping a god who's impotent, unloving, and absent. And repentance is turning to the God is revealed in Jesus Christ and saying, no, God is loving. I see it in the cross. He's powerful. He rose from the dead. He is with us. His spirit was sent to dwell in my heart. And that turn is repentance. See, repentance isn't a change of behavior. That's what we've been taught. It's like, repent. Okay, I'll stop worrying. I will try really hard to stop worrying. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to go, stop worrying, stop worrying. Now I'm worried about not worrying. Right? Because that's not repentance. Repentance is not behavior modification. Repentance is a change of worship. The word repentance is metanoia. What it means is a change of mind. But we tend to think mind is like, just stop doing things differently. Think differently. It's like, no, no. For everybody who would read the Bible in that day, change of mind was a change of the center. At the center of your being, something changed. Your God is different than he used to be. Now, it's not like God changed. It's your view of God changed. It's the God you were worshiping. You worship a false God. You turn to the true God as revealed in Jesus Christ. And that's repentance. And then what is faith? Faith is saying, you, Jesus, show me the power and the love and the presence of God. And now it's repentance and faith because I walk towards you. I believe in you. I trust in you. And, and faith is putting the, the weight of your life on something. And at that point, it's, babe, repent and believe the gospel. And my wife, for her sanctification, and you and me as well, need to regularly repent and believe the gospel. That's what sanctification is. It's ongoing repentance and faith in the personal work of Jesus Christ to reveal the truth of God to us so that we might be changed. We might be transformed. So at that point, I said, babe, do you believe this? And she said, yes, I do believe. She had faith. That's a gift from God, by the way. And so in that moment, I'm like, thank you. And, you know, while I'm doing this all the time, I'm, so, I'm like, Holy Spirit, please give my wife faith. Open her eyes that she might see. Help her to see Jesus again in this area of her life. And as she did, she repents, she believes. I said, what do you believe now to be true of who you are? And she said, I am loved. She said, and I said, what else? She goes, I'm more than a conqueror. She's not powerless. She has Christ in her. 
The power of the resurrection for her. So what else, babe? She said, I am not alone. He is with me. I mean, we, we experienced in, in a couple hours just, just beautiful repentance, beautiful transformation. My wife just getting changed from glory to glory in the moment. I love that stuff. Don't you? I mean, that, that's the only I don't want to run church. I don't want to run services. I don't want to do events. I want people's lives transformed. That's what we're in this for, right? And so my wife experienced that, and I said, so now what do you do? What do you want to do? Because, see, the desires of the Spirit that, that, that he, the desires of God are now written on our hearts by the Spirit. So what's going on now? Repentance and faith leading to a, a reminder of your identity in Christ leads to a new behavior. And she said, what do you think she said? If she's dearly loved, what does she want to do? She wants, she wants to give thanks, give praise to God. So it led to worship. So she loves God now. Oh, you cannot love, by the way, apart from God loving you first. So when she knows that she's loved, now she can love. So she gives love to God. She, loves, she wants to love others. She actually wants to step out in faith and, and, and she wants to obey. Okay, and it was interesting because when we got to this point, I said, what are you experiencing? She said, I'm experiencing love and joy and peace. So that was the fruit of the Spirit. Good. Now we're where we need to be. Now she can go live a life that God's called her to live. She doesn't have that. We can't do it. You can't do it. Or you can try. It'll burn you out. It'll wear you down. It'll give you a sense of pride or depression because you'll be super impressed with yourself or you'll be super discouraged with yourself. But you won't be impressed with him. Yeah, you know, you know, worship leaders on Sunday work way too hard, I think. Because they're trying to get a group of people to worship God. But if you're living like this, you're worshiping God. And all you're doing is gathering the church together and say, now let's all together worship the God we know who's been changing us all week long. And everyone's like, yeah! You know, I can't wait! You know, can you imagine the guy? I mean, you're kind of the worst worship leader there is. Like, I can't even sing. He's out of tune. And people are going, like, who cares? We're going to all sing that guy. Right? That's what's going to happen. Someone said to me recently, they said, you can know about someone's maturity because they're more easily edified. The more mature they are, the more easily edified they become. So you can, you can have, you know, the old organ, you know, let's sing, you know, and, and, it, and they can go like, yes, a mighty fortress, and they're just praising, you know, and it can be horrible music, but the, they're just like, yes, our God is worthy. But see, we, we, don't, we, don't, we aren't grounding people in this, see? My concern is we're doing all this and very little of this. And at best, many of us are only doing this with this. This is what you should do because this is who God is. But there's no Jesus. It's not, if you don't get Jesus, you're not Christian. Okay, that's just, let's just be clear about that. Okay? Like, you teach all you want about God, but you don't teach anything about Jesus and what he's done, then you aren't a Christian. Okay, so you can't be a Christian church if Jesus isn't the head. If it's not all about him. So maybe even some of you are like, it's going, you're going like, man, we've got to repent because we've just been making this about us. We're the God. And see, here's what, and I love, Tozer says this, if you don't understand who God is and the way that he's been revealed in his word, in particular the word of Jesus, then what we do is we make God in our own image. And we worship a God of our own making. And that God is impotent, let's be clear. Of course he's not in control. As you aren't. Okay? So I want to start with this. So, you're following me now? Can I get this? Here's what I want to do. We are going to get to here. But I want to make sure you ask these questions regularly of every behavior you're calling your people to. Okay, well, why do we gather? That's a good question to ask. 
We should. Why? Hopefully you get back to the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit living in eternal community. Loving one another and intimately acquainted with one another. There's something about getting together that we have to realize is grounded in the very nature of who God is. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus, you know, we get to what he does. John 17, Father, as you are in me and I am in you, may they be in us so that the world might know. What is he doing? He's saying, everything you did through me should now inform who they are and let them be like we are so the world will know what you did. It's always that way. It's never, guys, come on, be unified because we need a unified church. It's like, no, you are unified. You're in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The church is one body with one head, with one Father, with one Spirit. It is. It's not something you try to be. It's what you already are. Now live in light of your identity. When the church doesn't live as though there's one church in San Diego, it's because we believe the false gospel about who God is. We actually believe God is divided. And he's not. And neither is his body. But we live like it. This is why we must fight to maintain the unity of the Spirit. What does that mean? It means to make it known, to make it real, to make it protected, to not let anybody come in and destroy the view of what God is like through His church. See, if if one good thing would happen today, it would be that we would believe that for San Diego and that the church would realize there's only one head, there's only one senior pastor in San Diego, that's Jesus Christ. Okay? And if we could all be under Him and His headship, think of what could happen. All right, well, enough preaching. Probably not, but... um, I don't even know where I'm at in my time, so. Amen? Yeah. Okay, good. I, I think so, too. I'm super encouraged by this. And By the way, I want to do this because this can be a great, for you guys as you're thinking about any kind of behavior transformation, any kind of church transitions, whatever it may be, please do this work. Okay, those of you who are like, like big words in the room, all I just did was, this is theology. Okay, what we believe about who God is. This is Christology, the truth of who Jesus is, and in particular how Jesus, through his work, reveals to us who God is and how he changes who we are. And this, right here, and this is where it might trip some of you up, I want to call this ecclesiology. The study of who the church is, not the study of what the church does. And this is where I think we're a little bit in trouble. Because so much of our talk about ecclesiology, and those of you who don't know what that word means, ecclesiology, it comes from the word ecclesia. Ecclesia is the gathering. What it means in Scripture is the gathered ones. But we've tended to make it the gathering. But what it's most supposed to mean is the, the gathering to Jesus. The, the people gathered to Jesus are the ecclesia. Now, the reason why we get in ourselves in trouble is because we go, well, ecclesia, the gathering, gathered ones to Jesus, that's who we are. We're the gathered ones. What do we do? If we're the gathered ones, what should we do? Gather. So yeah, we want to gather. But what we end up doing is we make the, the, the action of our identity the new statement of our identity. Does that make sense? It's like, well, see, you go to church. No, you don't. You are the church that gathers because you're the gathered ones. And you're gathered to Jesus. So why not gather together around Jesus? But you're already his gathered ones. And therefore you gather. Get that order right. Okay? So what we end up doing is we do ecclesiology here, and I want to say this is missiology. Missiology is what we do in light of who God is, what he's done in Christ, and who we are. Therefore, we go out and live on his mission in the world all the time, and and that's what we do. We are sent ones for the mission of God. Now, getting this right allows us to have lots of freedom and diversity over here. 
But if we make ecclesiology over here, then we try to say, no, see, ecclesiology, a good view of churches, you must gather for an hour and a half on Sunday and Sunday nights. And, you know, you used to have to do Sunday school and then a Wednesday night prayer meeting. And you have all these things you do. And like, now that's a church. But if you don't do that, you're not really a church. And it's interesting that you'll never find that anywhere in the Bible. So when, when Paul or anyone else describes the church, he tells them who they are. But we tend to go to what they do. I mean, even think about this. Acts 2, 42-47. How many of you heard people go like, we want to be an Acts 2 church. And they look at Acts 2 as their definition of the church. What about the gospel? Let's start with the gospels that led to Acts. Let's talk about Jesus and what he did. And remember what Jesus says in Acts 1? You will be my witnesses. That's a being statement. So it starts with being his witnesses. Though so he says, wait for power on high. Why? So you can be empowered witnesses. So Acts 2 is the result of Acts 1. Identity. We are as wit- we're the witnesses of Jesus in the world. And we're empowered by the Spirit and sent by the Spirit. And so Acts 2 is the results of them believing the truth about their identity and living, letting the Spirit empower them to live it out. It's not like, oh, we should try to do Acts 2. You can't try to do Acts 2. Get people to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. The only way you get that is if they get the Spirit. And the way they get that is they understand that they, they actually are the church. No one gets devoted to something unless they are in love and loved. That's, devotion isn't I know the Bible and I go and hear someone preach. Devotion is I'm committing my life to what the Word of God calls us to be and do in the world. That's devotion. So you've got to understand mission if you're going to get that. You've got to understand who you are. And all of Acts 2 is a description of God's people getting who they are empowered by the Spirit on his mission in the world. That's why they do it. Okay? All right. By the way, I don't mind interruptions and pushbacks, so as we're going, if you have, you know, we're going to take a break in a little bit, but if you have any questions about this so far, it's fine for you to push back a little bit. I'm going to now kind of dial this into our understanding of the Great Commission. Okay? Good? Right. So same four questions. Now, by the way, I would, I would add a fifth one over here. We're going to talk about this maybe later today. And that is, how should we do it? Now, this is where you get to contextualization. This is where every church and every group of believers in every part of the world is going to look a little different because they're going to have to work out what they do in light of who God is, what he's done, and who they are in their context. And this is where we, we, we start being generous towards one another. We don't start critiquing each other and going, well, we figured it out. The way we do it is the way to do it. It's like... No, the way you do it is the way God called you to do it in light of the unique gifts and people and place and time. Beautiful. The diversity of the church is beautiful. Let's, let's celebrate that. Let's not create a one-size-fits-all, cookie-cutter church. It's supposed to be, at the end of days, we're going to, you know, there's going to be this beautiful bride, you know, coming down to meet her husband, and, and Jesus is going to, this is a great wedding feast of the Lamb, and what you see in that day is every tribe, tongue, and nation, every aspect of culture, captured for this beautiful celebration. It's going to, we're not, we don't want them all to look the same. It should be different. And we need to celebrate that. Okay? So we'll get to that. How do we uniquely do it? And I would say this is a missional ecclesiology. It's a people on mission who express what it means to be the church in a particular place. Okay? So as those of you who don't like big words, you're like, stop it. So I will. Okay? Let's get back to the ones we know. Okay. I mean, you 
because he died there, because his son, that was like it, like there's no other way, or I mean, there's, I don't know. We have general revelation. You know, Romans 1 tells us that we can know the, uh, what God's like, his invisible attributes and his divine power through what has been made and is clearly seen. Yet we reject it and worship the creator for the created, so we need now Jesus to rescue us to be able to show us the truth about what God's like. You can't primarily come to know what God's like by general revelation. You must have specific revelation through the spirit of, of God through his son, Jesus Christ. So no one can intimately come to know the love of God apart from Christ. So make sure we understand no. That's probably a good thing for me to clarify. Biblical no is like Sarah knowing his wife and they became, had a baby. That's no. I don't, we can, we can, people can know lots of truths, cognitive like agreement to. Like, yeah, God's loving. I, I can see how that makes sense. This is what it says. Or I can see in the world there's this idea of love and they can have a... They have an image-bearing understanding of love, but they can't know God is love apart from Jesus. Know meaning intimate acquaintance with, that I've been loved by God. You can't know you've been loved by God apart from Jesus Christ. That is absolutely true. And Scripture's real clear about that. Anybody pushing back on me? Or, it's a good question. But for instance, if you, if you preach in your church... Hey, guys, God loves you. And you never preach the cross of Jesus Christ. They will never come to know the love of God. They will hear you tell them God loves them. They will never know God loves them. What was that? Yeah, oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, did y'all hear that? Intercourse with God. You know, that makes it a little uncomfortable, I know. But... um. <laughs> But that's what Jesus is praying, by the way, in John 17. Father, I mean, this is the language of what he said, of course. Father, may, as you are in me and I am in you, may they be in us that the world might know that you sent the Son. That, that sounds quite intimate in language. You're in me, I'm in you. That's the whole, when the Spirit comes to indwell the believer, that's what that is. So that's why Jesus, and we'll get to this in a little bit. Or I'm sorry, Paul in, in Romans says, uh, if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. Because if Christ is not in you, you're not a Christian. Okay, so, um, and by the way, I would tell you, I'll, I'll say this with, I think, more certainly than I've ever had in my life, there are a lot of people in North America who believe they're Christians because they go to church and can articulate doctrines well. But they do not know God. And Jesus Christ said, John 17, 3 in his prayer, Father, I pray, that, I pray that they would know you. This is eternal life, that they would know you and Jesus Christ who you sent. And then he goes to describe what no means. You and me and I and you. That they would have that. That's what no means. So if people don't have that, we should, we should call them to a trembling and a fear. Work out your salvation for it's God who is, work, is at work in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. If he's not in you, then we should be trembling. He's not in you. Okay, I'm going to come back to that in just a bit because I want to walk through these. Well, let, let me just go there because I want to say it a little, little bit more, maybe one more time. Paul, when he shows up in the church, to the church in Ephesus, what's the first question he asked? Did he ask, did you pray a prayer? Write it in your Bible? The year you did it? No, he doesn't. He says, did you receive the Spirit? That's his question. Because he knows if you didn't receive the Spirit, then you're not a temple of God. At least not a purified temple. 
What happened in the Old Testament? The, 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 the temple is purified by the shedding of blood. Then God's holy presence comes and dwells. And they know that it's been rightly cleansed because God is now dwelling in her. Same with us. Christ's blood is shed to cover us, to, to forgive us of our sins, to make us a holy temple whereby God can come and dwell. And that's why Paul's checking that. Do you have the Spirit? Because that tells you that you're a child of God. It tells you you're a holy temple. It tells you you've been cleansed of your sins. So I want to encourage you, if you're trying to give people assurance of their salvation, just ask the question, do you have the Spirit? Do you have the Spirit? And then you might ask other questions. Well, here's how you know you have the Spirit. You know God loves you because the Spirit tells you you're a child. You're dearly loved. You can call him Daddy, Romans 8. Call him Abba Father. Yeah, I know that. Now, there may be some of you in the room, by the way, you're going, I've never come to understand God as a loving Father who dearly loves me and I can call him Daddy. And some of you, it may be because your earthly father is still your primary picture of who God is as Father. And you know what repentance looks like for you? It's not try harder to love God and be a good, good little boy or girl. It's I need to realize I've been worshiping a false God because I've worshiped my dad as the picture of the Heavenly Father. And I'm going to turn and see that Jesus, when he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm going to look to Jesus as the only one who shows me what the Father's like. If I can see the Father in Jesus, now I can come to know a loving, uh, consistently faithful dad who just gives and gives and gives and gives for his kids. There's maybe somebody in the room who just don't believe that. Like, when you pray, you don't pray, Father, Dad. That's how Jesus prayed. That's how he taught us to pray. Why? Because that was the evidence the Spirit of God was in you, showing the Father's heart for you. Okay. So let's just take the discipleship kind of paradigm. Now, I don't have the time to walk through everything I'd like to with you today, but um, I'll try to go after what I think would be helpful for what we have left. Um, and we'll probably take a break and off to continue it. But I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. Now, we're going to take a break in about 15 minutes or so, okay? Is that right, or am I off? Yeah, it's probably about five minutes then. Let me just set the paradigm, and we'll come back and unpack it together. Okay, um, it's really important, by the way, if you're going to be committed. What's the, what's the mission of the church? Make disciples who make disciples. Okay, it's, uh, it's to glorify God in all things. Remember, the grand mission, the grand vision of God is that, his, that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Uh, water in covering sea, that seems like it's the same thing, right? So God wants it to be with his glory. That it would so saturate everything that you could not get away from the glory of the Lord over the entire earth. So that's what his grand vision is, his mission for accomplishing that vision is to make disciples who make disciples. What is that? Uh, you have to define that. For a lot of us, we talk about, oh, we're committed to disciple making. What is a disciple? If you haven't defined that, it's hard to know. Yes? I think that's part of it, but I think you don't include the aspect of every nation. The missing part of it. I can have seven generations of disciples here in San Diego and only touch one nation. Right. That's why I started with the vision being on the whole earth, which is every nation, every people. Yeah. Yeah. You got it? Okay. So, so disciples who make disciples to all nations. I'll say the rest of it. Yeah. I wanted to start with a vision. So we'll go to the mission. Uh, make disciples who make disciples of all nations. Um, do you have, you've got to define disciple. And um, this is important because a lot of people still define disciple primarily in cognitive terms. Meaning they know the doctrines. 
You know, they study their Bible, they do the disciplines. And, I mean, it's very, very like reduced to spiritual disciplines and cognitive agreement to the truths of the doctrines we believe. And yet, if you look at Jesus' disciple uh, paradigm, you start in Matthew 4, verse 19. It says, I, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There's kind of three key statements there. Follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Okay, if you get to Matthew 28, which is the end, okay, Jesus has done it, okay? It says they went to the mountain, verse 11, the 11 disciples went to the Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. What, what Matthew is trying to help us understand is follow me means worship Jesus. Okay, now I want to say it this way. The clarification of some doubted tells us that they're not done. They're still in process. Like when I have people go like, yeah, I made a disciple. And then I moved on and we're doing it. Like I've become a disciple. And, like, and it's almost like discipleship ends. But discipleship never ends as far as I can see in the scriptures. It's like it's both a beginning and a middle and an end. And it doesn't get done until Jesus returns and we become like him. Because the goal of discipleship is not just you come to believe in Jesus. It's that increasingly all of life comes under the lordship and empowering presence of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. That increasingly all of life is coming under the lordship and empowering presence of Christ. That's what worship is. Worship is all of my life for all of him. So we're, we're calling people to worship Jesus increasingly in all of life. So that all of my life increasingly comes under the lordship and empowering presence of Jesus. Okay? So, not only that, but I will make you. Now, what's Jesus saying? I will make you. Is he saying, like, come on, guys, get your act together. Become something. You know, like, you can do it. It's not Jesus. He doesn't say that. He says, I will make you. I will do it. And what do we see in baptism? He says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What is, what is he saying there? What is baptism? What's that? Yeah, it's burial. So old guy is dead. Raised into a new person. New creation. That's a new identity. Okay, baptism, the word baptizo, that's the Greek word. What it would mean was you take a piece of cloth and you dip it into a, a dye. And when you pull that cloth out of that dye, you'd say it was baptized red or whatever this is. You know, it was baptized. Why? Because you became it. It became you. you. There's a oneness. There's a new identity. And so baptize in the name of the Father. That's a new identity. In the name of the Son, new identity. In the name of the Spirit. That's why he uses name, language. You got a new identity. So Jesus is going, I will make you fishers of men. Which means we have a baptismal identity. Okay, we're going to unpack this in our next session, okay? And then fishers of men, what does it say? And teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So it's not, Jesus doesn't go like, Teach them the Bible. In fact, I'll just say this. If all you do is teach people the Bible, you are not obeying Jesus. You teach them to obey Jesus. Teach them to obey everything I commanded you. See, you can, the religious leaders knew this better than anybody. Way better than Jesus' disciples. That's, let's be clear. They were better Bible people than Jesus' disciples. That's, everyone's laughing because you know it. Like you follow Jesus, they're like idiots when it comes to the word of God. Compared to the Pharisees, you know, like the Pharisees were brilliant. They were not lacking biblical knowledge. 
They would be of the best Bible teachers of the day today. What were they lacking? Jesus. So you, if you go to these, thinking that by these you'll have life, but you fail to come to Jesus through the scriptures, you are no further, you're no closer to Jesus than the Pharisees were. That's what will happen. And so Jesus says, you come to these, you think these will give you life, but you fail to come to me. And later on he tells us every bit of the scripture was always pointing to him. It was always all about him. So are we getting to Jesus through the word? And are we teaching them to obey Jesus? Fishers of men, we're going to go, Jesus fished them. He called them. They followed. Now he's going, now I'm going to send you and you're going to do the work I did with you. And here's the thing I want you to hear. Anything God does for you, he wants to do through you. Okay? God has loved you in Christ so that through you he might love others. God has reconciled you to himself so that you might have the ministry of reconciliation. God has redeemed you so that we might be people who redeem our culture. And on and on and on. Everything he's done through in us or for us, he wants to do through us to others. So here we are obeying Jesus. Okay? So for me, when I describe a disciple, I say it's one who's increasingly worshiping Jesus in all of life, being changed by Jesus in all of life, and obeying Jesus in all of life. That's kind of how I describe a disciple. You don't have to agree with this one, but you should probably at least make sure you have one. So you can go, are we being faithful to call people to this work of making disciples of all nations?